the vibe was unbelievable. And of course, we that um, having the um, challenge there and having been able to track the other cities and what was happening, um, everyone was doing it. It was really fun. You are listening to We are recording. Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. We are sitting, well actually first I should say, this is Billy Brown, one of your co-hosts with... Tony Crosdale. Tony, where are we sitting? We are in the Urban Wildlife Podcast studio, aka my basement, my finished basement. It's a nice basement. It's a nice basement. And yeah, we're... The comprehensive library of nature's books that I want to read all of. Yeah, so this is my um, studio slash library. Uh, we call this the Roberson Library. Um, there's actually only one, only two Roberson uh, pieces in here. Um, when this was in my old house, it had many more Roberson, Josh Roberson artwork pieces in here, but we still continue the name. So this is where I keep all my, my books, uh, my podcasting equipment, and a significant amount of my optics. And um, yeah, sometimes I come down here with my cat on my lap and I read books um a lot less than i'd like to but um that's the idea a study not a man cave yeah so we got uh new equipment here um this is our debut of the new equipment we haven't um recorded the podcast since we we have we have recorded the podcast since we got the new stuff but we haven't set it up yet so this is the debut we got new mics um we're wearing headphones we have a new recorder um, so we're excited. We'll see how this goes. This might not be. Hopefully, it's a dramatic increase in quality of audio, but um, this is a learning curve. So we will see what we do. We've been doing this for like five years, and somehow right now it just feels so official. It does. <laughs> Having the headphones on, I think, really helps. <laughs> I got these microphones in front of us with the sort of springy supports on them so that the, if the table vibrates, you don't hear it in the microphone, which might sound like not a significant matter, but considering how many times we've had like an episode where we're like a little noise is creeping in i'm like what the hell is that and i realize it's the table vibrating (laughs) so having like there's these little bits of technology that obviously people have had this problem solved for decades but still it's like but yeah we are uh very excited to have this equipment and thanks to our patreon supporters for the contribution um mostly this is uh um they contribute um a significant portion of it, but yep. the vast bulk of it is uh, because my beloved aunt died, and um, I inherited. What was your aunt's name? Uh, aunt Joni. Okay. And, and she died, and um, I inherited um, a little bit of money, like a little bit, like two thousand dollars, <laughs> more than half of it, which I spent on podcasting. <laughs> it made the difference, yes. Yes, um, but you know, I I think she would appreciate the investment in. Future and um, Should we I call think, it the Aunt Joni Studio. Yeah, we could call it the Aunt Joni Studio. In fact, I have a piece of her artwork I want to hang up. She was really into um, um, embroidery. We did an episode a few months ago called "We're Gonna Kick Tokyo's Ass," which was us talking about a bunch of things, but including the, the City Nature Challenge. Uh, and Tokyo is kind of arbitrary. I think in Philadelphia, um, every city's got their rivals, but in Philadelphia, we tend to pick on our bigger cities around us. New York, Washington, Boston. Not that they're bigger than us, other than New York. You mean bigger in... The larger cities in Yeah, we're not picking on Harrisburg. Right. Yes. We tend not to bother with Baltimore, especially if they're in the same division in sports. And so, like, the Mets for New York, 
either the Giants or the football team from Washington, whose name I don't like to say. Yes. Um, and then, you know, Boston, the Celtics and basketball are traditional rivals. So we have those rivalries. But I felt like this is a global competition. Let's take on the biggest city in the world. Um, and so we were sort of looking in Tokyo. Similar latitude. Good point. They're on the coast. Of, we so, have a lot of their species you know, running but, invasive in our territory. Yeah, they're actually a little bit south. I think uh, um, climate-wise, a little bit south. So we're like Maybe, punching yeah. above. You know, we're not like we're punching up. We're not punching down. We're not picking on like Duluth or Minneapolis. <laughs> you know, totally landlocked and colder. So we were going after Tokyo. Uh, we had pulled this together in a way, like in a way we hadn't meant to going in. Like so, we had thought that uh, I will leave them unnamed for now. A major institution, in Philadelphia, would be taking on the City Nature Challenge. They ended up not being able to do it, and so part of our group of nature buddies, you, me, um, Robin Arasari, and Naveen Sasi Kumar, um, you know, we had been sort of lobbying on the outside to get Philadelphia to have a to get Philadelphia to have a strong um, registration representation for it. So when the, group, the organization we thought was going to do it fell through. We had had Naveen like, signed up um, as sort of the backup option. And then it turned out Naveen, as the official organizer for Philadelphia, was the only option. So we pulled together as a committee and we like, got all the reached out to everybody we can think of at the organizations around us in Philadelphia. Um, Naveen on his own is like a force of nature on a naturalist. Uh, but so that was our group. And so we were just sort of organizing it as a volunteer committee. Um, it turned into a lot of work in some ways, but um, I think fun work. And Philadelphia, in the end, placed really well. Um, we were basically in the low, if you figure like 150-something cities took part around the world, Philadelphia was um, in the, like, I forget, we're 23rd or 24th for number of observations. Um, we were in a similar position for number of species, which was a head-scratcher for me, frankly, because I was like, well, we'll talk about Cape Town in a second. A place like Cape Town should, like, did and should kick everyone's butts in species totals or like a place like 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 rio de janeiro or something like that um some like more tropical latitude city um with a lot of biodiversity but but i think a lot of it is also just having people out there seeking out um the taxa that they're they're good at or that they're interested in um and and sort of getting up numbers of species that way uh, and so Philadelphia did great that way. But really what we what we placed in really well that I was impressed with was we were 16th for numbers of people. Um, so we were, uh, let me find this, the numbers. Um, so Philadelphia, we had 565 people take part in the City Nature Challenge, um, which, you know, if you think of like, a, a, it, it, and we did it, I think, with the help of a lot of partners as like a whole lot of little events and, and walks and bio blitzes and stuff out there. Um, and, uh, but still you, you, we, I would remember looking at it towards the end. Um, and we, if anything, we had, we were sort of gaining momentum through the competition and the Monday we ended up having a ton of, a ton of people taking part and a ton of observations on the Monday it went from Friday to Monday. Um, and somehow on Monday, when I thought everybody was going to be back at work and putting away their smartphones with our naturals app and everything, like we were still getting tons of people getting out there and finding stuff. So. A mistake I made was yes, I organized uh, programs with elementary school children, <laughs> and um, they they're not old enough to have their own iNaturals account. So, you know, I don't think it's a mistake. I'm I'm being ridiculous, yeah, yeah. but we had. Um, 
let's think about it. We had, I did it with four classes. So you're talking 120 kids at least, just yeah. just myself. And put it all under one account. So we could have added, you know, 100 more kids if it went with high schools and they had their own phones. So, yeah. Know. I think the, uh, the, but if we're taking the overall mission of getting people right. in, the, in the Philadelphia area or like in cities around the world, like turned on to nature, then that's like perfect. I think that's awesome. If you think about it, you know, most people aren't going out by themselves. Yeah. And there's, um, we had how many, at least a dozen walks organized? We all? had th- over 30 events. Yes. Yeah. So I'm sure we had well north of a thousand people engaged in that event. I agree completely. Yeah. And I think these are hope and what we hope, fingers crossed, and hopefully, you know, is looking at next year and ways to do this throughout the year, which is what we do on this podcast and we do like so many other ways, um, is, is, is hopefully people can take this kind of thing home and say, hey, that was a lot of fun walking around Aubrey Arboretum and like trying to look at all the bugs and plants we could find yeah. and like get back to their block and look at their back garden or like, you know, what's growing out of the sidewalk and be like, you know what, what's that? You know, and take a picture of that and like see what it is on a naturalist and keep it keep it going. So that's our that is our hope and dream for this. Um, but as we were doing it, I was like, you know, I can never really turn off the podcast brain completely. So I was thinking, okay, we should get some audio from other cities. Um, and a few cities came through. Um, we're gonna listen to some of that now. We've got uh, actually an old friend of the podcast, Peter Kleinhens, who was on an early episode. From 2015, that's how long we've been doing this, Tony. 2015, called Right Under Our Noses. He was talking about Kirtland's snakes in Cincinnati, Ohio. Turns out Peter is now in Tallahassee um, and was uh, was part of the City Nature Challenge team there. Um, we also heard. Well, we're also going to hear from Kelly O'Donnell um, from our our one of our nearer competitors in New York City, um, and they had a special Battle of the Burrows. Uh, it turns out Manhattan. You know, maybe this isn't too much of a spoiler. I don't know, but Manhattan swept in all three categories, um, with Staten Island getting the most improved award. Um, I don't know. You look at the, you I mean it just strictly on like the the kind of terrain. I would think like Queens or, or Bronx should should clean up. Um, uh, yeah, or Brooklyn because they have the Queens and Brooklyn are both on the coast, the ocean proper. You got like marshlands. You've yeah, got like Jamaica uplands. Bay. Yeah. Well, we'll see. There's always next year. Um, and then uh, Maui, the last city participating because it's the furthest to the west in the sense of getting closer to the international dateline. So Christchurch, New Zealand was the first city taking part. Um, I remember we woke up and we're like, Christchurch was like kicking butt. We're like, who? we didn't even thought about Christchurch. Um, we were thinking like we had to think about San Francisco and LA and you know, those kind of cities. But Christchurch was just like out of the gate really fast. Um, and then on the, the back end, Maui was the final city. Ow! Citizen science! All right, we are here um, at St. Mark's River Preserve State Park here in Leon County, where we're having the Leon County Tallahassee City Nature Challenge. This is the last day of our event, April 29th, and we've had all sorts of stuff going on. We've had bio blitzes. We've had a big community event um, all over the city of Tallahassee. And right now, myself, Peter Kleinhens, Liz Schold, and Jerry Lindsay, all from FWC, are here in the middle of a swamp, um, far off of any trail. And Liz has just flipped a piece of wood to reveal a dwarf salamander. Um, yet another one of the many, many salamander species found in Leon County. 
and we just recorded on iNaturalist. And what's really cool is um, we're excited because Leon County has a relatively low population and a relatively low area, and we are in the top 20 of species. So we're really trying to record as many species as we possibly can, get a lot more people connected to iNaturalist. Um, We've just been having a blast. We've seen all kinds of cool stuff, swallowtail kites, corn snake, um, pitcher plants, and now the salamander. So we're excited about the challenge and we hope to win. Kelly O'Donnell. I am the director of Science Forward at Macaulay Honors College, and I am the New York City organizer for the City Nature Challenge. I am standing in Lemon Creek Park in Staten Island. Um, it's a little chilly. Heard some birds. Science Forward is what we call our science curriculum at Macaulay Honors College. It's also an open educational resource that we made. Um, we developed it to promote the teaching of scientific thinking skills. Science Forward is interdisciplinary and it's skills focused so that students understand that there's this common set of skills that all scientists are using regardless of what kind of scientist they are. So that life scientists, physical scientists, everyone's kind of using the same set of skills and that's what we want our students to practice. Science Forward is also an active curriculum because um, we want our students to learn science and how science works by doing science. Um, and so to do that, in every fall, we have a bio blitz that all of our students participate in somewhere in the city. Um, and then they use those data that they collected the bio blitz as part of an original research uh, project. And that's why the City Nature Challenge is so great for us, uh, because it gives us another chance in the spring to collect data from the city, uh, to basically, you know, use the city as our lab. Um, and we can get some now, you know, experienced Macaulay students to be iNaturalist pros to go around the city and help out at public events. And so that's why it's really great and we really enjoy doing the City Nature Challenge. And today I am standing in Inwood Hill Park on the last day of the City Nature Challenge. And this year we are trying to do a battle of the boroughs to see which borough has or can find the most biodiversity. Um, currently Manhattan is in the lead, but we're hoping the rest of the boroughs catch up. Uh, looks to be a gorgeous day. Inwood Hill Park is where we had our Macaulay Bioblitz this year. It's a really cool place. It has the last piece of original forest on the island of Manhattan. Um, so it's very fun to walk through. Hey, this is John Starmer with Maui Nui Natural History uh, on the island of Maui in the Hawaiian archipelago. Uh, we are in the town of Kihei on the southern side of Maui. Uh, and there's actually a night market going on in the shopping center next to us. And uh, the, the drainage pond that's behind that shopping center is where we're set up. Uh, you can probably hear the black neck stilt, the uh, endemic and endangered IO uh, making a lot of racket next to us. I don't think they're happy about all the lights. I'll be quiet for a sec so you can hear them. Uh, a remarkable concentration of them too. There's probably you know 20 or 30 of these birds uh, hanging out in uh, probably less than a quarter of an acre of, of wetland here. Uh, but the reason we were here tonight was to check out some bugs. So we set up a night light, which is just a big white sheet with a UV light hanging in front of it. Uh, started just as the, the sun went down, so there was still light in the sky. But as soon as we turned this on, it was amazing. We just sort of ended up with uh, a white sheet that looked a little bit like a chocolate chip cookie. Lots of beetles all over it. 
Uh, and as it got darker, we've just seen much larger uh, amount of diversity. We've gotten all kinds of beetles, ladybird beetles, a bunch of black ones that I just don't even know uh, the names of, a lot of different kinds of flies. We've gotten a bunch of different types of ants, uh, certainly some termites and probably some carpenter ants. Uh, a lot of different moths, uh, earwigs, just yeah, r really uh, remarkable uh, diversity. So this has been a really cool way to get the, the wildlife to come to us rather than us going out and looking for it. Uh, so we'll probably do another station or two as the City Nature Challenge progresses. But this is uh, the end of day one of the City Nature Challenge. We're the, the last city. Uh, New Zealand is going to wake up tomorrow and continue on with day two and just having a lot of fun with this so far um, and looking forward to the next three days. Hey, this is John Starmer here with uh, Maui Nui Natural History and we are in the middle of the City Nature Challenge on the island of Maui uh, over by the Kealia Pond National Wildlife Refuge and we're doing our little uh, meetup slash bio blitz here. We're over by the ponds and Lots of cool wildlife going on. Um, we're watching some wandering darner dragonflies laying eggs in the shallows of the pond. Uh, we're looking at some endemic coots, and we've got uh, what we assume are some vagrant laughing gulls, so not regular visitors that we just spotted off in the distance, but lots of uh, wonderful bird life, which is really what the pond's all about. Uh, we've got some uh, black-crowned night herons, we've got the black-necked stilt, the uh, endemic Io, um, and we've been lucky to have uh, one of the volunteers here at the park, uh, Mr. Sonny Gampona, is, has been pointing out both in, in invasive stuff that they're trying to clear out and some of the natives and uh, we've also had the chance to look at some uh, restoration projects that have been going on. So really a pretty good, cool day here on day two of the City Nature Challenge. The city that like, that just like annihilated everybody in observations um, and a lot in species was Cape Town. Um, and as soon as we saw it, I think we, we all had the same kind of like, uh, of course, <laughs> uh, because uh, I think we all, I don't, I'll start by saying like, I know reptiles and amphibians. I think like the Cape region's got some interesting tortoises, for example, and some other stuff like that. Um, but like you'd make up your numbers in the city nature challenge with bugs and plants um, and, uh, you know, Tony Ribello, who I've, we interviewed, I interviewed for this episode, is going to talk about that, about why there are so many darn plant species in the Cape. Uh, yes, I'm Tony Ribello. I work for the South African National Biodiversity Institute, where I'm a researcher, a, a bit of a jack of all trades. So I do all sorts of things, um, from GIS to conservation planning, to monitoring, to restoration, um, Basically, anything that needs to be done that requires a little bit of scientific backup for other teams within Zambi. When we in Philadelphia were watching the leaderboard totals pile up early on, we were not at all surprised about the biodiversity uh, that you guys were, were documenting in the City Nature Challenge. But um, honestly, we were a little bit surprised by just the numbers of people. Not all of our listeners will be so familiar with 
um, the biodiversity of uh, the Cape. So could you please give a quick introduction to why you would find so many species in the Cape Town area? Okay, well, the Cape flora is um, quite special. I, I don't think we really know why it is so rich. Um, but it's on the southern tip of Africa. Um, it's, a, if you like, a historical flora that survived when Africa migrated north. Um, and it not only survived, but um, it's coupled with a really nutrient-poor soil. We have the um, Cape Supergroup, um, which includes some sandstones, which are huge, immense layers of sand, um, effectively pure glass. So most plants can't grow on it. So there's a highly specialized flora um, which occurs on it, and, and it happens to be a flora that's related to species in Australia, and there's an odd few species in South America, and presumably there would have been a good um, flora in Antarctica um, of the same group. And because of the topography and the um, way the Cape Fell Belt got fragmented, it's effectively a whole series of islands on the mainland of this really poor soil. Um, so it's a series of islands, and if you like, it's an island flora. So every patch you go to has its own endemics, its own specials. Um, and so we're sitting with over 9,000 species of plant in the Cape flora. Um, that's one in every five species in Africa occurs in the Cape flora, and the Cape flora is less than 0.6% of the area of Africa. So it's a minute area that plays way above its weight. Um, and Cape Town is situated on the one end of that, but it's the rich end. So we've got two centers of endemism for the sandstone fynbos. Um, and so we've probably got in the order of 3,700 species of plant, which occur here naturally. Um, and then we also have a hold of aliens due to our history, um, European aliens from the Mediterranean, um, aliens from Australia. So we're probably adding another 800 to 1,000 plant species um, onto that in terms of alien, a lot of them invasive, a lot of them problems. Um, so we have a very rich um, flora. But we mustn't forget that the same thing happened in the sea. So we also have a very rich marine um, life. So False Bay, which is in Cape Town, has over a thousand species of, of, of fish and invertebrates. Um, and we have a very active diving community as well. So that was a surprise to me. I, I was not aware of that when we entered the challenge. I only discovered that, in fact, because of the challenge. So where did you get all the people? <laughs> um, well, <laughs> we didn't get as many people as we hoped. We, we had hoped to get people. Um, but, yeah, we have a, a slight advantage. Um, in the 1980s, end of 1980s, 1990s, we ran what was called the Protea Atlas Project, um, which was an attempt to get citizen scientists to go up and map our proteas. Now, proteas are really charismatic um, you grow lots of them in California and um, Hawaii, so you know all about them. Um, and we managed to get people excited about them. So in the end, we had about a thousand teams in the Cape Flora um, running around, um, monitoring them, looking where they occur, um, looking at their phenology, when they grow, when they um, produce flowers. And that came to the end in about 2012. And these people were left around with nothing to do, and they got really frustrated. Um, and in the end, um, the national red list assessors decided, no, we can use these people. And so they created the custodians of rare and endangered wildflowers. Um, and effectively, they got those people to go out and monitor the threatened species um, in, in the country. So um, in Cape Town, we have a very high proportion of threatened species because of the aliens, because of the um, urbanization and agriculture, and because we're just so rich. 
Um, so there was lots of work, lots of stuff. And over the years, they built up into very efficient and very well-trained, almost an elite team who go out and monitor species at all times of the year. So we had this group with us and we were able to, um, what's the word? We tap into them and say, hey, look, we're going to be doing this, except, of course, we're doing it at exactly the wrong time of the year. This is the worst possible time we could participate in a challenge for biodiversity because nothing's flowering. Virtually, um, the end of summer's come, everything's dry, beginning of the cold winter, our rains haven't arrived, um, it's going to be impossible to achieve the target. And, and, and they took it to task. They know where all those species are. They went and hunted them down. So even though there were no flowers and some of them aren't even in leaves, and they were able to get those species. And then coupled with that, we also have the Wildlife and Environmental Society of South Africa. Most of our nature reserves in the town have a, a WESA group, a friends group, and that helps them with their management, the alien clearing, and the school groups that come to visit the reserves. So we were able to mobilize them as well. Um, they happened to have their first meeting for the year um, at the same time that we decided we were actually going to take part in the challenge. And when we announced that they took this as one of their goals and one of their ways of getting involved. So we had a really two really good big teams um, participating. And then the scouts came on board. <laughs> they, they said, this is fun. We want to do it. We want to do it throughout the whole country. And we had to say, whoa, this is only Cape Town. Um, and they said, okay, well, we'll do it in Cape Town on condition that you roll it out to the rest of the country over the next few years. Um, so, yeah, we have a bit of a challenge ahead of us. And the scouts, in the end, produced 10% of our data, which is an amazing achievement. Um, but, yeah, we didn't get our numbers up. Um, we were hoping to get 2,000 people because that's what we estimated we'd need, and we only got half of that. So we, we really didn't accomplish our goal of getting lots and lots of people involved. But the people that did get involved were really fascinated. And I think it all happened on that first night. So we started off well. We weren't ready yet. When we came on, Christchurch was there, Hong Kong was there, and then we came and put on our stuff and then went to bed. And the next morning, we were still still there. And I think that made the difference. That got everyone really excited to, to realize that, you know, we could do it. It was possible to do it. So we had a target of um, 40,000 observations, but that's what we needed to win. And we weren't realistically expecting anything more than about 15,000. And it was that that morning when we got up and um, realized that, hey, we're still in the lead. We can do this. That I think got really everyone excited. And, yeah, everyone just mucked in. It was amazing. The vibe was unbelievable. And, of course, we that um, having the um, challenge then, having been able to track the other cities and what was happening, um, everyone was doing it. It was really fun. We realized that if we want to get our numbers up, we're going to have to target the schools. Um, and that was not really, I wouldn't consider it a major success. We had some really good schools, which really participated fantastically, but I don't think we managed to get the buy-in of all the teachers. So that I think if we do it next year, that'll be our target. So we did have the reserve, the schools coming into the nature reserves, and they were shown that and explained that. Um, but then they leave, and um, the motivation for the actual event um, didn't materialize. But, you know, it's, it's part of the problem is that... Um, the schools that go to nature reserves tend to be the under-resourced schools. So they they are the ones who don't have the cell phones, they don't have the Wi-Fi connections um, and the stuff to actually participate in this. This is very much a first world activity. Um, and our first world component is quite small. Um, well, so I'd like you to talk yeah. about that because it's something that um, I know we thought about in Philadelphia, which is that uh, we knew that we would be, or, and this was our first year and um, and didn't do nearly as well. No one did nearly as well as you guys, but we didn't do nearly as well as you, as you guys. But um, the 
we knew that we could get sort of the educated folks who are who read the same kinds of um, websites as we do and the same kind of uh, listen to the same radio stuff that we knew how to get on the air with. Um, but uh, I don't know that we did a great job of reaching beyond our, our social circles. Um, and so I was just curious about this. I mean, uh, you just mentioned that about the under-resourced schools being ones that you got out but didn't have the technology. What does the demographics look like for your more elite core of, of naturalists who go out there and do the surveying and um, and the friends group? I mean, do you see like a broad the broad sweep of, of Cape Town society involved there? Or does it tend to be better educated, whiter, et cetera, folks doing it? Um, well, I think we have a, a problem that's possibly common to societies throughout the world, but certainly in the Western world, in that most of our demography is old, white, female um, people who take part so, and, and rich. So it's, it's your people who've retired. Um, the men die, so that leaves us with the women, um, and, and they carry on and, and, and do this. So our task is, well, our challenge for, for decades now has been to try and get the youth involved and I think that's the fun of this sort of challenge. It's, 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 it's technology that the kids understand, cell phones. Um, it's a way of trying to get the kids involved. Um, and I don't know if we succeeded, but we certainly had enough of the kids to teach the old people how to use it um, and get them involved and excited. Um, so I, I would prefer if we could get more people, and I, I think that's the way going forward. Um, the, the challenge is a great tool for bringing people together and, and getting them excited. And I, I think that's its potential as, as we see it. So we do tend to be aging um, upper class societies, but this is a way of bringing in um, other groups. And we did identify right from the start that um, the technology would be a, a challenge. So the city of Cape Town came on board with its um, library network and they made their libraries available um, to anyone who wanted to come and upload and, and do stuff but I think I, I think still that the fact that uh, the other thing that we have that you guys um, wouldn't understand is that we have to pay for data you know we don't get free data you, you can't just go in uh, on a um, street corner or something and um, get your latest um, stuff off the net and stuff we actually have to pay for it, so it's a little bit more tricky. So that's where the schools, uh, where the libraries came in and, and provided a free upload service, and especially for kids. It's quite expensive to upload lots of pictures. Thank you. I didn't. I didn't realize that. Okay. Do you have any thoughts on what you'd like to do differently um, next year? It would be really grand if we could run it in our spring. Um, the, the problem with um, getting people out there, kids and and their parents and, and their friends, is that it's dry, it's dull, it's boring. Um, only Oxalis is beginning to flower, and it's only the beginning of its season. So um, it's, it's very limited. It would be lovely to do it in our spring when we have you know, hundreds of species in full flower, um, and, and the felt absolutely looks magnificent. Um, so I think that's one of our goals, to, to try and – work out a system whereby perhaps in the future we would have at least some competitions in which we can compete in our spring. Um, but now I've forgotten the question. Oh, just sort of plans <laughs> for next year, you know, that kind of thing. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And the other thing that um, that really came out in the analysis afterwards, it's amazing, is that our crew and Wesser groups managed to get about 65% of our species, of our plant species, which is really phenomenal considering that um, – you know, less than 100 species were in flower. 
So, yeah, um, I think that if we do it in spring, we're going to have a different sort of challenge that everyone's going to be chasing the pretty flowers. And to try and to keep them focused on on the species is going to be a, an interesting little problem. Hey, so I have a quick um, question for you then. Um, not yes. challenge related, but you talked about how people are chasing the pretty flowers. Is there a species of plant um, that is maybe less obviously charismatic that you might like to tell our listeners about that is a favorite of yours, even if it isn't the, the showiest um, plant in the Finbos? Um, no, no, I'm afraid I like the, the, the big and the glamorous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, it just so happened that the challenge coincided with Maris Modi's Day. Um, and Maris Modi's Day is a, a crew activity. It's a, it, it's a public holiday. Um, and they go out into the Swartfeld. Swartfeld means black felt because at this time of the year, there's, it, it, it's just gray and, and, and boring. And they go looking for a little species of daisy that flowers. Um, and... They go because it's boring, and so they need to go and try and find it. It turns out that we've got eight species of Marismodes in our area, most of them rare, some of them critically endangered, um, and so they go hunting for this. So a fair size of our um, actual crew groups actually left the city and to go and explore in the areas nearby and looking for this plant, which they do every year. And it just so happens that um, the people who stayed behind, we discovered a couple of new populations of Marismodes. Um, but it's nothing to write home about. It's a teeny weeny daisy. You can't tell even when it's flowering. Huh? Yeah. The the flowers are so small and inconspicuous. All right. Well, still, I'm, I'm going to go look that up. So thank you. Um, I just wanted to say thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Uh-huh. And you've given Philadelphia something to shoot for for next year, for sure. I don't think it would have been nearly as much fun without other cities in the world taking part. Being able to look at what you guys were doing, find out, and, and to realize that one is part of a huge team out there going and all doing the same thing. That was really brilliant. It was really a fun time. We thoroughly enjoyed it. I just need to take my hats off to the city of Cape Town. The conservation biology staff, the reserve managers, everyone just just came out in full flow. Everyone embraced the idea. It was really stunning. It was a real fun activity. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, yeah. Enjoy your afternoon, too. Take care. Sorry, morning. (laughs) The whole day (laughs) is in front of me, yeah. All right, thanks. visit that we our last episodes were on yeah. Kenya and that was my only time in Africa there you go all right we were supposed that was our plan for a honeymoon was we wanted to go to Africa and we figured Cape we wanted to go to South Africa to do Cape Town and yeah. to do uh, Kruger because um, you know Angie's really you know she's a maritime attorney so she really likes the ocean oh, of course and we wanted to do safari so we figured you know we hit you know a few days in Kruger Get it all, and, yeah. and then we go and like do you know, we might even do shark diving, and you know, who knows, you know, yeah. or, and, you know, we'd see all the albatrosses and penguins and, and you know, all, um, all the incredible life down there. And the part that I hadn't realized, and I, I did a little research into to La Paz, Bolivia, which also ended up placing really highly, um, sort of out of nowhere from my perspective, but I shouldn't have been so surprised. These are urban areas with pre-existing um, citizen science networks. So people who are already kind of, out there volunteering to document biodiversity locally so that when the city nature challenge came around these are places that could then be like hey guys you, this is something we already do let's get out there these dates and like find as much as we can um i wanted a just quick shout out to laurel how do you say your last name laurel series i think so yep so La- da- laurel um who we interviewed 
I think this is 2016, um, in an episode that was partly about urban caracals. Um, cause she does, or she's, she's a, I forget what her position is specifically, but, um, with the urban caracal project, um, which is still going up and following them on Facebook ever since, um, looking at the, the caracals, which are, um, how would you describe them? You're the cat guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> they are, uh, I believe they're Felis. So they're, they're the same genus yeah. as house, as house cats. Um, so they're a, a small, like bobcat to our, if we're going to be North American centric lynx bobcat sized, yeah. um, cat, you know, we're talking about 30 pounds, fox size, really, maybe a little bit bigger. Um, 30 pounds is like coyote size, dude. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. More like coyote size. Solid animal, yeah. Yeah, 20, 30 pounds. With these, like, neat tipped, uh, like, like long hair-tipped ears. Yeah. Yeah. Hats off to all these cities, and hats off to the City Nature Challenge organizers. Um, This is something that, like, you know, I think we like to gripe a little bit about, like, man, I wish this had been, like... If it had been like the end of May instead of April, we could have found so much more stuff or like um, this way or that way that it's it, it could be improved. Um, but this is something that got started almost by accident a few years ago with San Francisco and L.A. basically having a friendly competition and it just grew from there. People get a lot of credit for trying to invent something or create something from scratch. But I think people should also get just as much credit for like recognizing like something with potential and then like running with it. Um, and it's totally what they've done. And it's uh, and, and I, you know we're all for that mission of trying to get people more connected with, with their wildlife and with their, the plants and, and fungi and slime molds. I learned more about slime molds in this process, by the way, because I kept saying like, it's tempting to say plants, animals, and fungi. And then you're like, but wait, there's other visible forms of life that you can find. And, um, I was, when I was at Bartram's gardens, LJ Brubaker has been on the podcast recently from Bartram's. Um, and, uh, we were at Bartram's and we found, I forget what, some kind of chocolate. They all got, the, the slime molds have great names. Um, and this is like chocolate something slime mold. There's like, there's raspberry slime mold. Dog's vomit is one that I've seen before in Philadelphia also, which looks like kind of this fluorescent yellow um, crust on a log. Um, and they might be, my understanding is they're not necessarily monophyletic, like they're not necessarily all closely related to each other, but that there are different forms where you've got like single celled creatures um, in your head. Think of something kind of like an amoeba maybe that like can live in a diffuse individual form, but then can also like come together into one mass and then like navigate the world together um, and form like breeding uh, and, or breeding structures and stuff. And it's just like um, something that can go from like single celled to like a mass and then coordinate is just a really cool concept. And it's something that like, isn't just funny, like it's called dog vomit, but that like it's this is a concept that you can like tap into and observe on like a trail, um, but be at Bartram's Gardens, an old plant nursery that dates back like 300 years. Yeah. Um, or you can go to like, I saw um, the Baxter Trail was the one where I saw the dog vomit slime mold um, mm. in Northeast Philly, um, which is like this, you know, kind of like post-industrial riverfront area. Um, so like you can you can get out in very urban areas and see some really cool stuff. I want to make sure we thank again uh, Tony Ribello um, from Cape Town, Kelly O'Donnell from New York City, um, Peter Kleinhens uh, from Tallahassee, and John Starmer from Maui. Thank you so much. Um, P- uh, thank you so much, Tony Ribello, for the interview. Um, you know, we really appreciate it, especially when um, we're coordinating across like like a whole bunch of time zones. 
Um, and then especially, you know, for, for John, Peter, and Kelly for going out there in the field and recording some audio for us um, while they were out there doing their, their City Nature Challenge stuff. So we appreciate that so much. And I want to thank Steiner Optics for personally sponsoring me, but also sponsoring our World Series of Birding team. Right on. All right. So until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you. Cheers.